Welcome to The Draft Board, where hosts David Song and Tyson Workington tackle the topics that you want to hear. From the rink, to the turf, to the court, anything and everything, this is The Draft Board. All right, welcome back to The Draft Board, ladies and gents. I'm David, he's Tyson, as usual, and now in part two of our summer 2021 <laughs> free agency and trade and olympics episode off-season episodes yeah that's right we we have a lot more to talk about because this time we're gonna we're gonna try to talk about a bit of the nba draft as well as a lot of free agency happenings in the nhl be they mm-hmm. trades and signings as well but to start off, you guys know that I love the Olympics, and mm-hmm. last episode we talked about the Olympics in some fairly significant depth, and now the games have come to an end, they've come to an end successfully, and if you're Canadian, you know that a certain soccer team mm-hmm. finally managed to break through. And Tyson, I know you're not a big soccer fan, I'm not either, but man, was that awesome. Yeah, it was a super exciting game to watch, you know. 1-1 after regulation, 1-1 after um, ext- uh, extra time, and going into penalty kicks. It was just the things that poems are written about, stories are, are wrote about, and songs are sung about. You know, it's one of those glorious moments where the Canadian team was able to fight back from the jaws of defeat. <laughs> they certainly were, and in the end result, a the, the first gold medal in program mm-hmm. history. That is, it's absolutely monumentous, I think, Soccer is really a fast-growing sport for girls in particular in Canada as well as in America, and I think this will only take that element of the sport into the stratosphere uh, in Canada, which is great. Obviously, you love to see Christine Sinclair, or as Nigel Reed calls her, Captain Fantastic, go Mm -hmm. out on the highest of high notes. Um, And obviously, this was a really young team, too. Uh, The young woman who took the penalty kick to actually beat the Swedes and get us his gold medal, Julia Grosso of the Texas Longhorns. She's only 20 years old as well. Jesse Fleming, who's been clutch in the playoffs, she's only 23. Jordan Heidema, uh, I believe she's about 20 as well. This is a young team, uh, and the future is so bright. But one thing that I really want to focus on is the the mutual respect that I think was there between all these these fierce rivals and combatants, particularly Abby Wambach, the uh, former U.S. soccer superstar. After after we won, she actually put out a tweet that was congratulating the Canadians and their coach Beth Priestman on this feed. And you know, to be honest, Tyson, I wasn't expecting that, nor was I expecting to see footage of Megan Rapinoe going around and actually hugging a couple, at least a couple of uh, our Canadian players after that hotly contested semifinal and wishing them luck in the final just because that rivalry can get so intense at times but Mm -hmm. seeing that i i really think it's awesome to see when rivals are able to to be professional about it to to bury the hatchet after every match and still maybe not be best friends but to give each other respect and goodwill yeah i think that's important you know like the NHL has the same thing where you shake hands with the team after the, each playoff round. And, you know, that's just a sign of respect after a long, hard-fought series. And after a, an intense match or with an intense rival with someone that you butted up, you know, against a lot, 
I know that it can be difficult to want to go through and, and shake hands and talk about, you know, some of that. You, you go through that moment, even in defeat. You know, it's, it's easy to do it when you win, but it's not easy to do it when you lose. And I think it's important to show class because sports is fantastic. It's great. But there's something more beyond sports. And there's this human reality that we have to live in where we're all human. We're all part of the same community there. And, and um, yeah, I think that it's really great that those ladies were able to show class even though it's a great rivalry between these two countries and it will be for a very long time now at the end of it all canada a record setting 24 medals including seven golds that's the best ever performance by us at a non-boycotted summer olympics and guy like you said we 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 broke past what we did in rio which was already very successful games at 22 medals like you alluded to the non-boycotted Uh, asterisk there it really shows that i think team canada is gaining steam against the big fish in the pool Mm -hmm. usa china roc great britain australia those kinds of countries as well as japan the host nation did very very well and Mm -hmm. congratulations to them after a very tough stretch um and i we we obviously we could talk again for many more hours about the olympics but mm-hmm. it's been well covered by mm-hmm. the good folks at cbc and sportsnet and tsn already mm-hmm. so i just want to conclude with actually a story from near the beginning of the games that a lot of people might not have heard about because it comes in the sport of road cycling which is not exactly huge on this side of the atlantic ocean no, but it's not an Austrian lady, 30 years of age, Anna Kiesenhofer, she has no coach, she has no team, and she is actually a mathematics PhD, oh. incredibly intelligent woman, but she also turned pro in 2017 after injuries forced her to give up triathlons. Hmm. And she managed to qualify for the Olympic Games, the women's road race, mm-hmm. And she was going against, you know, people like Anna Vanderbregen, the defending Olympic champion, and a whole host of elite female cyclists from Europe. And Tyson, she rode 147 kilometers, no coach, no team to play strategy with or draft off of or anything. Mm -hmm. She did a ton of homework. She mapped out the course studied it closely and kind of like diet training she does all this herself and she says that she prefers to do that she prefers to be independent and she ended up beating second place by well over a minute 75 seconds i believe to the point where the second place athlete uh i believe anna vanderbregen she thought sorry uh not anna vanderbregen uh, another cyclist but she the silver medalist thought that she had won the gold. Yeah. That's how far behind that she was. And I just think that this is reminiscent of, you know, again, it's cycling. It's, it's, it's cycling's a very niche sport here in Canada, but this stuff is reminiscent to me of a Rocky Balboa movie, how Rocky Balboa is able to train with logs in the woods <laughs> and somehow overcome incredibly world-class opponents through just grit and hard and this is kind of the same thing to me now it doesn't work out this way like 999 times out of a thousand mm-hmm. but still i still thought it was just worth sharing with anyone who didn't hear about it yeah no that's fantastic it's always great to see uh, those stories come through in the olympic games and you know have those great stories of success now moving on from that we want to jump right into the nba draft mm-hmm. and 
obviously, as Raptors fans, we want to talk a bit about Scotty Barnes, Mm -hmm. the young man, the forward that the Toronto Raptors drafted at fourth overall, passing up notably on Jalen Suggs. Mm -hmm. Now, before we get into this whole, ah, we passed up on Jalen Suggs, maybe we should talk a bit about who Scotty Barnes actually is so that we don't just Mm -hmm. throw him under the bus right away. So... Scotty Barnes is, is, is young. He, he just turned 20 at the top of the month. He was a five-star recruit coming out of high school, uh, 6'8", 225 pounds with an over 7'2 wingspan. Uh, we know that I'm the measurables guy, so yeah. might as well say it. He's got an excellent frame, uh, profiles as a combo forward kind of a role, quite athletic, moves well for a player his size. When you look at his tape, he is one of those multi-positional defenders who at least at the college level and in theory at the NBA can guard one through five because he's big enough to hang with the centers and quick enough to hang with the guards. He is known for having a professional demeanor and a lot of energy and effort given on the court. And those are those are always great traits to have, especially in young young athletes, as we know. He is a very good passer with the ability to get better as he learns a system under a really good coach like Nick Nurse. And so, again, Tyson, I know that you weren't the biggest fan of this pick, but looking at some of Scotty Barnes' strengths, how would you how would you evaluate him as a player in his own right? I think that Scotty Barnes kind of has this idea. He, he projects to be kind of a Draymond Green type. And Draymond Green, he's kind of a player that will fit in any locker room he'll fit with. Um, you know, any team scheme, he's very much a glue guy. He can play any position that you need him to play. He'll guard well in any position, no matter who he's going up against. And I think, you know, like you mentioned, that's kind of what Scotty Barnes has the potential to do. His wingspan definitely helps him on the defensive side of the ball. He will hopefully use that 7-2 wingspan to get some steals, to get some blocks, and to uh, play tough defense while he's breaking into the league. I think that with, you know, Scotty Barnes, he has the potential to be, you know, a top five player, a good uh, defensive player that can really help guard players. And I think that the Raptors took him because they really like that about him. They value his versatility on the defensive side of the ball. They value his ability to make great passes and to see the court uh, as a point guard, even though he's six foot eight. But I just see like that he has the possibility of becoming a Draymond Green, but I don't know if that's the kind of player that you take at draft pick slot number four. Like, I feel like Jalen Suggs could have been a really good pick here for the for the Raptors. But, you know, maybe because they took Malachi Flynn last year, they have Fred Van Vliet right now. Um, maybe they believe that they're confident in their guard spot. That they didn't need to take another one. So instead they go with Scotty Barnes here, who's, you know, he's going to be a good pro. He's definitely going to have the opportunity to play some games to break into the league. He's going to need a little bit of time to develop. But basically how I understood it from the draft and watching the draft is that there were a lot of teams in the top 10 that really liked him in private workouts and in the meeting room and stuff like that, and that he was a really great guy. So a lot of teams really liked him. I think everybody was a little bit surprised that he broke past uh, Jalen Suggs and he was taken top four. But, you know, this is a guy that a lot of teams had rated very highly on their draft boards. And so maybe in that light, it wasn't as surprising if you were an NBA insider. Having said that, the Orlando Magic get the benefit of Jalen Suggs now taking him a fifth overall. Suggs, 
if you're a March Madness fan, you know he hit that insane half-court shot mm-hmm. at the end of overtime to beat UCLA. And, yeah, he's a very dynamic playmaker uh, in the open court. He can run an offense. He can attack the rim. Again, maybe not the best spot-up shooter, but, yeah, what do you think, what do you think we might have missed out on in Suggs? This is just kind of my philosophy of the NBA, is that it seems like it's going to be a guard-driven league for the rest of this three-point era, where three-point shooting is so key to most teams' chances at winning, that if you don't have good guard play, it's really hard for you to build a championship team. Uh, The Bucs won the championship this year over the Suns, but they did it building around Giannis. But watching Giannis, a lot of times he started with the ball outside past the three-point line. And, you know, he would drive into the paint and he would be able to get a lot of buckets using his strength and athleticism to kind of bully his way into the paint. A lot of teams don't have that kind of freak athletic ability on their roster and like that, you know, Giannis has. So Wait, do you mean to tell me that two-time MVPs don't grow on trees? They do not. And it's really hard to find them because Giannis is just so special. But... I think that, like, how the NBA has gone, like, guards run the league. Like, a lot of the best players in the NBA play, like, that 1-2 style of guard play, regardless of their size. Like, you know, Kyrie Irving, James Harden, LeBron James, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, all these guys play well beyond the three-point line. They have the threat to hit you from three. They have that uh, core vision to be able to penetrate, but also to pass the ball. So I think that, like, just because of my philosophy of the NBA, a guard is always going to be more valuable than a forward or a center because that's how I view basketball. I think that the guy with the basketball in his hands is the only guy that can score, and the guy that has the basketball in his hands 90% of the time is the guard. It's really hard to score when you don't have the basketball, right? So I I think that, you know, for me personally, I would always take the chance on getting a high-quality guard over a forward in a a position top five in the draft. I think that's a fair point, and especially with how highly touted Jalen Suggs was, this probably has ruffled a lot of feathers uh, in basketball circles, and I'm sure that there's our fair share of Raptors fans out there who aren't thrilled with the pick, but I think we're going to have to hope then, as Raptors fans, that Fred Van Vliet can carry the mail as a lead guard, and Malachi Flynn will take a significant step forward in terms of his development, especially now that fan favorite Kyle Lowry has departed for the Miami Heat. And what did we get the other way, and uh, why was Gordon Dragic not going to work out here? No, I'm just kidding. Well, we don't know that yet. But. We don't. So we got uh, big man Precious Achua and, like you said, Gore, uh, guard Goran Dragic from the Heat in a sign-and-trade. Like Kyle Lowry, he was ready to leave um, the Toronto Raptors in free agency. And basically what this trade basically means is that Lowry signs in Toronto so that way he can get the most amount of money in his contract. And then he is then traded to Miami, the team that he wanted to go to. So that way it kind of benefits Lowry for getting the most amount of money that he can out of a contract. But it also helps the Raptors in that they get something back for Kyle Lowry in a sign-in trade. So I think that what happened here in this trade is they get big man Precious Achua, and I think that's really going to help. The Raptors re-signed Kem Birch, but they waived uh, Aaron Baines. Which I think is a mistake. No, I'm just kidding. I just, <laughs> I'm still here wishing that Aaron Baines would have worked out in Toronto, but he did not. You liked the idea of Aaron Baines more than you liked watching Aaron Baines. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think 
pressures like Achua is going to be able to bring that kind of size that the Raptors were lacking at times last season. I think that he's going to be able to really help solidify that front court for the Raptors, be able to get some rebounding there. Goran Dragic is a kind of an interesting kind of situation. To say the least. To say the least. Goran Dragic has had some frustrations with his teammates in the past in Miami. You know, he's definitely clashed. Uh, he has a different and unique personality. He recently came out and said that he doesn't want to be on the Raptors long term. He's kind of hoping that the Raptors kind of flip him in a second trade here, um, maybe to Dallas. But Goran Dragic, as a player, what he is, is he's a he's a 20-point scorer. He's going to be able to give you 5 to 10 assists a game. Um, Goran Dragic, he's kind of a, he's a two-guard that can also run your offense at times if you need to. He's more, uh, I think he would probably be better off the bench than he would be in your starting lineup. With Goran, the thing, though, is that he hasn't been healthy in a handful of seasons. Like, he's missed significant time in the NBA seasons in the lockout shortened season, but also this season and the year year before the lockout. So, with Goran, it's hard for him to stay healthy as of recently. So, with Goran, he needs to stay healthy. He needs to stay on the court. But it's kind of a, a fluid situation in Toronto because if Goran doesn't want to be here then the Raptors might have to see if they can move him, see if they can get something back out of him that, you know, they'll will last a lot more long-term. But, you know, the Raptors, they could view this as kind of a, a Kawhi Leonard situation where they keep him for a year and then they let him walk in free agency. Who knows? But uh, at this point, Goran Dragic isn't that happy to be a Toronto Raptor at this point. And most Raptors fans are not happy to have him here after this. No, after hearing this, it kind of sours the fan base towards him a little bit. But I, I want to see what what happens before you know, I, I start making judgments on this. Because I think it's important to understand that... It's tough going from Miami to Canada. <laughs> it's a lot of it's a big weather change, right? So maybe Goran is just you know a little bit upset about it, but um, we'll see what happens. And if he happens to play games for the Raptors, I hope that he plays well, uh, and I hope he helps the team. But yeah, so certainly. And one thing that I want to add to that is, and I'm not saying this is necessarily the case straight up here, but sometimes athletes or celebrities or general in general are criticized for not being honest or fully forthcoming in their media availability sessions but then sometimes when they are honest as Goran Dragic was they're going to be heavily criticized for for what they say and mm-hmm. now again per- personally i I think that this isn't a great look for someone who just got traded to a new team and yet at the same time at least he's honest, like because <laughs> if he really doesn't want to be here, the other Raptors are going to experience this in the locker room. Nick Nurse and his coaching staff are going to experience his his discontent, and the problem is going to exist anyway. So there is that is just something to consider. Yeah, I guess when you put it that way, it's always like two sides of the same coin, and your coin is always going to have criticism on it. So no matter what you say, there's always going to be criticism. So. I, I appreciate Goran for speaking his truth and speaking his mind, but I, I guess with Goran, I, I'm hoping that he can maybe come around to the idea of playing for Toronto and that he can, um, yeah, be a contributor here. And a quick word on, on Kyle Lowry as a lifelong Raptors fan, what are we saying goodbye to and what is the Miami Heat in all likelihood going to get here? Oh man, we, well, we're saying goodbye to probably the greatest Raptor of all time. You know, he's, 
been here for many years. He was, you know, one of the mainstays for us as part of that Lowry DeRozan playoff push that we had for many years. He was a part of those Dwayne Casey years where we built a winning team with him, kind of focused around him and DeRozan and also kind of around a really good bench mob that we had. It was a it was a good time and Kyle Lowry he said in an interview that yeah his plan was only to come to Toronto for a couple of seasons and then leave in free agency for a better opportunity but he fell in love with the city he fell in love with the organization the team and and Masai brought him along and he was able to have a stellar career here in Toronto and you know he's always going to be missed I wouldn't be surprised if you know the day after he retires number seven retires in the in the banners for the Raptors. I think he's going to be a great uh, a great player for like he was a great player for us but I also think that for the Heat he's going to be able to bring that leadership he's going to be able to bring kind of this uh, mentality that he always brought with the Raptors you know Jack Armstrong he always talked about how Kyle Lowry is this pit bull of mentality he's in your face he's going to be tough he's going to be uh, he's going to be going he after you He is the straw that stirs a drink Exactly and he's definitely going to help pull some of the younger players on the Heat into the fight but also he's going to be able to add some scoring, add some assists. He's going to add some, you know, he, he is kind of that traditional point guard where he's able to pass the ball, get other teammates involved. Uh, because of his age, you know, you're going to have to limit his minutes. You're going to have to temper your expectations down from what he was able to do during the championship run in Toronto. But he definitely has a lot left in the tank, and I know that he can give a lot to the Miami organization. I'll tell you why. I can't think of a better duo than Kyle Lowry and Jimmy Butler to whip a locker room into shape and make sure that everybody stays motivated and that everyone is giving maximum effort. Like those two guys, like, man, that's a that's like a pit bull and a bear right yeah. there. Well, give Pat Riley credit. Like Pat Riley, he always loves guys with a, a great mentality of high intensity and high energy, and you know that's why he you know, when he was coaching the Knicks, that's what he was always bringing to the table and Pat Riley, you know, he loves his guys like that. And, and he got one in Kyle Lowry. And I envisioned the, the heat to be a tough team to beat this year. And as someone who didn't get into basketball until, as I've said before, about three years ago, what I've noticed in Kyle Lowry is that, well, first of all, coming from the world of hockey, hockey subreddits sometimes feature hockey fans calling other teams and other athletes soft rightfully and wrongfully basketball is often targeted i think in canada as being soft kyle lowry has never been soft no like he is not only a sturdily built point guard but like you said he has he's always had a gritty competitive mentality he takes charges all the time i think he's he was very mentally tough he was able to bounce back from from moments of adversity and of course in his skill set he had the ability to be a very good shooter he had the ability to attack the rim but as a true point guard he could also run the offense and get his teammates involved very well-rounded player i personally am glad to that i watched a, a run with him and Kawhi leonard that ended at the top of the mountain and we definitely wish kyle lowry the best of luck mm -hmm. and with that said we also wanted to talk about another noteworthy trade involving a shall we say more volatile point guard <laughs> in one Russell Westbrook, who went to the Los Angeles Lakers in exchange for Kyle Kuzma, Montrez Harrell, Kentavious Caldwell-Pope, and the number 22 overall pick in this year's NBA draft that passed not too long ago. Now, 
we have already discussed Westbrook's strengths and limitations in a previous episode, and I think at the end of the day, he is what he is. He's an incredibly athletic, try-hard player, and I, I think try-hard here has both good and bad. He'll try, he does try incredibly hard. He pushes the pace. He makes the most out of his incredible athleticism, whereas other athletically gifted players don't do that all the time. Mm-hmm. However, for all of his numbers and his triple-doubles, not only has he not ever won anything in the NBA— but for me, what I know, because I know you're not a Russell Westbrook fan, but for me, what I see are issues in shot selection and efficiency. Yeah, sure, Russell Westbrook may be getting triple doubles a lot. He may be the all-time record holder in triple doubles, but first of all, uh, you don't really need your point guard to get 10-plus assists, or, or sorry, not assists, but 10-plus rebounds a game, mm-hmm. certainly not to average that. And I think that... One thing about Russell Westbrook is, okay, sure, I, I'd be interested to see how many of his triple-doubles come with an efficient shooting line from the field, and how many of his triple-doubles come with something like a 9-for-21, or, or a 7-for-18, or or something like that. And, and let's be real, like when he's not able to drive the basket and finish with a dunk or a layup, his jump shot isn't particularly feared. You don't have to consistently guard him from three because he can't consistently hit from there. And so, yeah, I think that the Lakers are getting a, a big star. They're getting a lot of athleticism and fire and the ability to do something special every game. But they're also getting someone who, like I said, is very, very volatile. Yeah, it's kind of an, an interesting trade for the Lakers. I... I wonder how it's going to work with him. I I know, like, for me, what I'm thinking is, is how I would do it, is I would have Westbrook playing, you know, as regularly as he can, but I would then have, you know, Anthony Davis and LeBron James give tons of rest to those two guys and just make sure that, you know, they're both very ready, very healthy for the playoffs. And, you know, what's... Russell Westbrook with, uh, you know, Anthony Davis playing half the games and LeBron playing the other half of the games, that team will be a top four seed in the West just because of how good LeBron and AD and Westbrook are. And I think that, you know, Westbrook himself can lead the team to a handful of wins just by himself. So with Westbrook playing on the Lakers, I have no question that they're going to have regular season success. I want to know how this team is going to do in the playoffs because the Lakers are the oldest team in NBA history, unless they get some younger players to add to their roster. But, you know, they, they don't have any youth. They don't have much talent um, kind of kind of past this, these, these top three guys. Like, they have some guys like Kendrick Nunn and Malik Monk who can stretch the field a little bit in, sp- in spots. But, man, like, the Lakers in the playoffs, I want to know what this team can do and what their, you know, plan is on how they're going to incorporate these three monsters in the playoffs together on the court at the same time. Because I don't know if they can. Like, Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook in a pick and roll, that would be lethal. But then you're leaving LeBron James kind of on the outside as a, as a defender. So, I mean... What are you going to do at the end of the game when you need buckets? Is it going to be Westbrook's ball? Is it going to be LeBron's ball? Are you going to give it to AD? What What's the plan for for when the paint becomes clogged and Russell Westbrook can't drive the ball anymore? What's his role going to be when he can't drive, he can't get to the rim like you said? Is he going to be kind of a, a point guard where he's facilitating? 
because he's not really done that in his career. I don't know. Like, I just have a lot more questions on his fit in the Lakers when it comes to the playoffs. And I would have to agree with you because I don't think Westbrook and LeBron James fit together particularly well because if you look at them, their skill sets are quite similar. They're both very athletic. They both can be very good rebounders, very good passers, and lethal at attacking the rim. The difference, of course, being LeBron James is bigger, better, more dangerous from the perimeter, and a much more proven winner. However, their play styles clash because they're both very ball dominant. They both need the ball, and they need it often, in order to maximize their impact on a basketball game. And so, like you said, what is going to happen with them on the floor at the at the same time? I think, like you said, the Lakers might have to minimize this, especially in the regular season, to give LeBron, who's the older player, some, some much-needed rest and, and load manage him. There's a buzzword for you, load management. <laughs> but... But yes, like the comparison that I draw is to the the Golden State Warriors team that dominated in the late 2010s because for all that Stephen Curry is a lethal marksman from three-point range, he does not need the ball every time up the court in order to be effective. When you watch Curry, when he doesn't have the ball, he's constantly moving. He's cutting, and because he's so lethal as a shooter and a scorer, when he cuts and he moves, he demands a defender on him. You can't play zone against that because if you leave him a little bit open he'll probably burn you and make you look stupid doing it clay thompson much of his skill set is uh reliant upon well maybe not reliant upon but it features elite shooting as well and so steph and clay can kind of switch off and each time up the court one guy can can be the primary ball handler one guy can be the the shooting threat but it doesn't have to be the same guy every time draymond green like we mentioned earlier is like he's a guy that's happy getting seven points, ten rebounds, and nine assists each game, and he 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 fit. And then if you plug in something someone like Kevin Durant, who's just amazing, like the Olympic Games recently, we saw that Kevin Durant can score from from anywhere. What I sort of see there is that in the Golden State Warriors, you not only had a elite talent, but you had elite talent that could complement each other. But here, I think that LeBron and AD is great, Westbrook and AD is great, but LeBron, AD, and Westbrook, the thing is, if you share the ball between Westbrook and LeBron James, most likely neither one of them will be as effective as he could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that you're bang on there. That the I wonder if LeBron is going to be a lot more off the ball this year to help complement Westbrook, which would then kind of lead me to thinking like maybe LeBron is giving up control of the team to Westbrook and Anthony Davis, kind of like taking more of a backseat in his later years, trying to go off the ball more, trying to be less of a ball handler and more of a, a more of a off the ball kind of a guard forward type of player. I wonder if that's what LeBron's looking at this season and that's what the game plan is going to be. I mean, you know, Kevin Durant, for example, he constantly plays off the ball in Brooklyn. He played off the ball a lot in Golden State before that. But I, I wonder, like, how much you can go with your best player playing off the ball. Like, in today's NBA, you know, the best player always has the ball in their hands. Like, whether it's Giannis or, you know, uh, Joel Embiid, they, they have the ball. They're handling the ball out past the three-point line, inside, in the paint. They go everywhere with the ball. Right, and with LeBron not getting as many touches, not getting in the the ball as much as he would, I wonder 
I have, a, I have a lot more questions than I have answers at this point. And I think it will be very interesting to see how those questions get answered or not answered mm-hmm. over the course of next NBA season, particularly as we hit the playoffs. Now, in terms of the return that the Washington Wizards got for Russell Westbrook, this to me, at least at first glance, was a very ho-hum kind of return. So you've got Kyle Kuzma, who has the potential to be a very good stretch four, but the key word there is potential, because if he was a consistent player, the LA probably doesn't let him go. You've got Montrez Harrell, who, for all the energy and hustle that he brings, he's simply too small to guard a proper center and some power forwards in the paint. Like, if you're going to get Montrez Harrell against, oh, I don't know, Nikola Vucevic, like, let's not even talk about Embiid or Giannis, but Mm -hmm. Montrez Harrell against Nikola Vucevic in the paint, I would have to imagine a guy like Vucevic will win at least eight times out of ten. And the problem with Harrell is he does not have enough of a shooting stroke or a free throw shooting stroke to make up for his size deficiencies. He's kind of like, to me, he strikes me as a, as a bruiser inside who lacks the size to do it at both ends of the floor consistently, but cannot be a stretch four, stretch five either in a small ball system. So he probably valuable on the bench, probably valuable rotationally, but not a, not a huge piece, I don't think. And then Kentavious Caldwell-Pope, well, he can be a good three-point shooter. He isn't always. And he can be a good defender, but he's no Drew Holiday in yeah. that regard. And then, finally, the number 22 overall pick. As we know, the NBA draft is only two rounds, and any pick outside of the top 10 is definitely less valuable than it would be in other sports. So what are you reading on this, Tyson? I think it reads, number one, the value for Westbrook isn't what it once was when he was back in Oklahoma or even in Houston. I think that people have realized that Russell Westbrook as a player maybe has been overvalued by his stats at times. Um, But number two, I think that for the Wizards, it kind of just signifies that they're just hoping to get pieces. They're just hoping to get players. They're kind of looking at this and kind of going, well... You know, Kuzma is a piece that maybe could develop into something. KCP is a good piece that maybe we could develop into something. Montrezl Harrell won the sixth man of the year award a couple of years ago with the Clippers. Maybe we could trade him at the deadline for something. Maybe a couple of second rounders or a late first. And we got a draft pick out of it. And I think that, you know, the Wizards, they're probably going to be looking to unload Bradley Beal relatively soon. So they're going to be heading into a rebuild. And I just... I wonder what the Wizards' plan is because, uh, I mean, Kuzma, who knows what he can be. I, I've heard this great kind of idea of, like, Kyle Kuzma's a really good player, but he just can't mesh with anybody. And, like, we've only seen him with the Lakers, so we'll see how true that is. But I want to see Kuzma take that next step as a player, both with his scoring ability, but also with his ability to mesh within a system and within his, you know, teammates in the organization. So... I think that, like, for value-wise, I think it's pretty equal. Like, Westbrook isn't the greatest player, but it wasn't the greatest return either. It's kind of like this is kind of an even trade where there wasn't really a winner or a loser. It was kind of just an interesting trade with some big names. Yeah. Yeah, I I think so. And, again, the Wizards, you got to feel for them in that they weren't really able to get the most out of... Well, rather... They weren't able to put a team around Bradley Beal Mm -hmm. uh, when they had him, and he was consistently their only high-quality asset, and now that that ship appears to have sailed. So we'll see 
what they can do on the back end of this. Um, you you do raise a good point uh, that Montrezl Harrell is a former six man of the year winner. I just said what I said because from what I saw in recent playoff runs, particularly this one, no, I, yeah. he just he wasn't terribly impressive to me. And I really think that with his, I think that if he was six eleven yeah. or seven foot, completely different story. But at six seven six eight and with no real mid range or three point shooting to speak of it's tough to use him in anything more than a, a rotational role. No, I think you're right. And, like, I think Montrezl Harrell got a lot of notoriety when he won that Sixth Man of the Year award because that was the first season that uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George came to the Clippers. So a lot of people were watching the Clippers, watching to see how they would play, and they saw Montrezl Harrell play, and, and he stepped up in some big moments. So I think that helped his case a lot with being a Sixth Man of the Year award. So... I think that, you know, maybe I'm not saying that he didn't deserve that sixth man of the year award, but I'm saying that um, he definitely was his popularity was helped by a lot of, you know, incoming players that came into that organization. And, you know, he has some talent to fit into a system. But like you said, he I don't think he can fit into a starting lineup. Now, speaking of the Los Angeles Clippers, they are they are in in a desert right now. <laughs> I think that. If you're a Clippers fan, you're probably not very excited for the next few years. And first of all, we've we've talked about their performance before in earlier episodes. And at this point in time, giving up five first-round draft picks for Paul George. And, uh, and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And Shea Gilgis-Alexander, a, a good young piece. That appears to have backfired about as hard as possible on the Clippers because you've completely mortgaged your future. It's gone. Like, your immediate future's gone. And George simply doesn't seem to be the player that he once was. He simply doesn't seem to be the player that I'm sure the Clippers and their fans thought they were getting. And I think over the last two playoff runs, his current deficiencies have been exposed, whether it's inconsistent mental battle when the ta- when the going gets tough or a simple inability to be an efficient high volume scorer when his team needs needs it most he was not particularly impressive in that game game seven against the uh the phoenix suns i believe it was after Kawhi leonard was injured and i think without Kawhi leonard he is a good player, but not somebody who was worth five first-round draft picks and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. So that's part of the problem. He's got a massive price tag attached to him, as well as all this capital you gave up. Kawhi Leonard's problem is that, as usual, he continues to be injury-prone. He's not going to play, I don't think, this this next year. That's It was a... It was an ACL injury, and these are all... Those are, are never easy to come back from. But... One thing that you said to me the other day kind of stuck out to me. It's almost like he's holding the team ransom because he wants a big contract to bridge over and then a max and then like a super max contract on the back of that. But if you have no capital and this guy who he's great when he's healthy, but Kawhi is not going to be healthy pretty much the entire year. What do you what do you do? Yeah. And like, that's the thing is that. You know, Kawhi Leonard, he currently doesn't have a contract. It's reported right now that he's agreed to terms with the Clippers. We don't know what those terms are yet. But with Kawhi, what do you like what is Kawhi gonna do for you this season? Like the chances are is that he's not gonna play. And he you know, he's gonna re- be rehabbing that ACL injury that he had in the playoffs. And 
he what was reported earlier on is that I think that Kawhi Leonard was looking for a one-year contract so that way he can build up another year a second contract with the same team yeah that he was on that's right and because of the NBA ruling he would then be eligible for a highly lucrative max contract with the Clippers and so he's gonna the report is is that what he wanted to do is he wanted to re-sign one year for in Los Angeles the next offseason, he wanted to sign the max contract that he could get in Los Angeles for the Clippers for like four or five seasons and get paid highly lucrative amount of dollars. And how I was looking at this situation is I was going like, what do you do if you're the Clippers? Because you're kind of stuck being held hostage by whatever Kawhi wants because you gave up so much to get Kawhi and the fact that he wouldn't have come without Paul George. So you have to give up your future for, for Paul George, and you got him, and you got Kawhi, and you're in this kind of win-now mode. But the problem is is that you're in a win-now mode with what people would oftentimes probably say is a Paul George that has been disappointing at times and an injury, an, an injured Kawhi Leonard. And what do you do with that? Like You can't really go into a rebuild because you don't have your own draft picks. So if you're trying to rebuild without your own draft picks, you're not going to get very far because <laughs> you're not going to be able to pick. But wh- what do you what else do you do? I, I don't know. L- like for me, like what I what we were talking about earlier is what I would think that I would do is, is if I was the Clippers, I would consider I, I would sign him to a one-year contract and then I would give him the money. I would give him to that that max contract at the end of it. But after I signed that four or five year max contract, I would be seriously considering trading Kawhi Leonard because he'll have tons of value and a lot of teams will be interested. And because he has four years of contract, he has a lot of team control, which means that a team like the Hornets, who in a couple of seasons after LaMelo Ball grows and learns a little bit more, would be maybe looking to contend. Um, Charlotte would be interested in maybe acquiring Kawhi Leonard at four years on this contract still so that way that he doesn't just leave in free agency like he did with toronto and like you said before if a smaller market team like charlotte does get Kawhi leonard even though he's super expensive he would bring a lot of notoriety to that team a lot of publicity and he would make them a lot more competitive than they were beforehand so they would likely be interested in taking that on yes and that's kind of what's happening right now with ben simmons is that a lot of small market teams like portland and it was rumored before the draft toronto was interested in ben simmons because he has three or four years left on his contract Mm -hmm. and the team controls that and he can choose like the team can choose on, on you know if they want to keep him past that or not but at least they have him under contract for three or four years. And Ben Simmons's choices are either play for the small market team that trades for you or retire. It's kind of those are the only two options, right? And it would be a similar situation with Kawhi where they would be, you know, in a similar, Kawhi would be in a situation where he would either have to retire or play for the small market team if he signed a long-term contract. That's kind of what I would be thinking if I was the Clippers, but it's hard to convince ownership that you're going to spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on a player that's not going to play for you this season. And then you're going to trade after you sign this contract. Certainly. And it's, it's really too bad for the Clippers that they're in this situation you, you might, you could wonder, Oh, what might've been if Kawhi Leonard had stayed healthy, could they have beaten the Suns? Could they have beaten the Bucks? But these are all what-ifs, obviously, and only time will tell how the Clippers move forward and whether that 
move involves a precipitous fall off a cliff right or not and finally really quick we want to touch on the chicago bulls and it's not because we are we're just living in the old jordan days <laughs> but because the chicago bulls actually seem to be going somewhere this year so they've got Already got Nikola Vucevic, who we mentioned him before as a versatile big man who can score at all three levels. They've got Zach Levine, a freak athlete who, albeit is very raw, but can definitely light the lamp, or that's a hockey term. Give you buckets. It's probably more of a basketball (laughs) term. To that, they've added Lonzo Ball, who showed real improvement, particularly in his shooting with New Orleans this past season. And DeMar DeRozan, that other Raptor legend that we briefly touched on. DeMar, a, a proven all-star slasher who definitely more uh, well-rounded than Levine. But yeah, he can score and he can give you points. So that's not a bad starting five that has those four in the, in it, at least in theory. Yeah, it, it looks like it's, it's going to be a good team in Chicago going forward. You know, they don't have that, like upper level superstar that you know like they don't have a, a top five top 10 nba player on their roster like you know the brooklyn nets do with kd or Giannis with the box but the bulls at least look like they're going to be going for it in the playoffs and they're going to be trying to be competitive which after a handful of seasons after the derrick rose kind of situation it's good to see the bulls that are are back in it and trying to make moves and trying to be good and I think that's good for the league is that, you know, there's a good quality team in Chicago. But I, I, I wonder what it's going to look like. It'll be interesting for sure to see what this team can do, if they can make the playoffs and how they do in the playoffs. They definitely have some talented players, some talented and intriguing pieces on their team. And, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to say the least. And, and you know what? Anytime that you're interesting in the NBA, that's a good thing. Definitely a good thing in a league that... Uh shall we say, sometimes certain games devolve into free-throw shooting contests. Yes. Interesting is good, and, and, and I'll, I'll tell you what. If this works out, I can see uh, I can see almost a version of like, like Lob City 2.0, where you got Lonzo Ball throwing up to Zach Levine and, and DeMar DeRozan. That could be very entertaining. That definitely could, yeah. Yeah, and so with that, with that being said, let us move on to our next big topic, which, of course is the NHL. And this has been a very, very active free agency so far. Lots of players have been traded. Lots of players have signed with new teams. Uh, there's a lot to go through. We, uh, we don't have time to hit all of them, but we want to talk about a few that really caught our eye. And one of those things that really caught my eye was the fact that the Colorado Avalanche were not able to keep Philip Grubauer, a Vesna finalist goaltender who... I believe he's on the right side of 30. And so who ended up signing Mr. Grubauer? None other than the crack house, mm-hmm. the Seattle Kraken. And like I said, for a team that has already been loading up at the goaltender position, they, they took Chris Trieger. They formerly had Vitek Vanacek. But then once they, once they got Grubauer, they traded Vanacek back to the Capitals mm-hmm. for a pick. But man... Chris Trieger backing up mm-hmm. Philip Grubauer, a Vesna finalist, and you're a first-year expansion team. You are sitting pretty, at least in theory, at a very, very important position. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like Goalie depth was definitely something that I think Seattle prioritized in the expansion draft. Vanacek played very well in spurts, the, the, time that, the games that he played in, in Washington. And Chris Trieger, he had a very good year. He kind of had a breakout year 
in uh, Florida there. And you know what? Now they get a Vesna Trophy finalist, Philip Grubauer. A lot of people don't necessarily like this pick in, in this signing because Grubauer, they believe that he was helped by a stellar defense core in Colorado, which, you know, the defense core with Kale McCarr, Graves, Johnson, and they just recently added Devon Taves. Like, that's a very good defense core. So a lot of people believe that Grubauer's stats were inflated. And I look at that and I go, okay, yes, they were maybe perhaps inflated. But when Philip Grubauer went down and Pavel Francouz went down in Colorado, they're, they're, they really struggled in the playoffs. You know, they were allowing four to six goals a game. Hutchinson had one good game for them. But other than that, it was kind of a, a frustrating time because they couldn't get any goaltending in the playoffs in their crucial moments because Grubauer wasn't healthy at that time. So I think that when healthy, Phil Grubauer is a number one goalie in this league. And, you know, they're paying him less than what uh, Markstrom got last year out of Calgary. So I think that this is a good deal for Seattle and it solidifies their goaltending position for a handful of seasons and they don't need to worry about it. They got some really good player there. I'm with you on that. I think the idea that Grubauer's performance was inflated by a defense may be true to a more subtle extent, but I think it's a real stretch to argue that he's not a quality goaltender. Like even if, even if he was helped out by his defense, what you're looking at is most likely a drop-off from a Vesna Trophy finalist to a solid number one goaltender in the NHL. And that is still very, very good. And like you said, Grubauer's current contract is worth, it's a six-year deal, $5.9 million annually. Like these aren't Andre Vasilevsky numbers. So if he does regress a little bit and he's maybe not in the anywhere near the Vesna conversation this year, but as long as he is a solid above average number one goalie in the NHL, which I think we have every reason to believe that he will be at least that Mm -hmm. this is, I would call this a coup for the Seattle Kraken and an unfortunate loss for the Colorado avalanche who I think they just weren't able to match the number that he was at. And it's unfortunate for them. Yeah, I think so. And like they prioritized re-signing Gabriel Landeskog, which I totally understand. He's their captain. He's their guy. And you know, you have to make some cuts somewhere sometimes. So I get it. Um, but it then also resulted in the Colorado Avalanche having to go out and make a trade with Coyotes to get Darcy Kemper to replace uh, Grubauer, who I don't think on is on that same level as no, Grubauer. Really. So I think that you know the Colorado Avalanche they they did a good job at trying to replace Grubauer, but I think that Grubauer is a, a quality goaltender for the Kraken. Now here's here's an interesting question. I'm not so sure that the Avalanche prioritizing re-signing Landeskog over Grubauer is necessarily as as justified as it is at first glance. And and here's why I say that. Landeskog, phenomenal player, phenomenal leader. He fits incredibly well with McKinnon and Rantanen, sorry, Nathan McKinnon and Miko Rantanen, that Mm -hmm. is, to form one of the best top lines in hockey. I'm not knocking Landeskog's value, but what I that I've seen over the last few years at least because I I'm not old enough to have watched hockey for 20 years and, mm-hmm. and certainly not to understand what's going on but see here's the thing it seems to me that almost like the quarterback in football the goaltender in hockey is the singular player who can steal a playoff series and revolutionize his team's fortunes and 
singular skilled forwards aren't able to do that as much. You saw, for example, in in the in the mid 2010s, the Pittsburgh Penguins added Jerome McGinley to Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin, but they weren't able to 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 win the cup. You look at a team like Edmonton, Connor McDavid and Leon Draisaitl couldn't get out of the first round. Now, obviously, both those both those examples, particularly Edmonton, had had deficiencies in other areas. But then when you counterpoint that to what Carey Price has done for the Montreal Canadiens, and even what Andre Vasilevsky has done for, granted, a very stacked team, but when the Lightning played some of their closest games in this year's playoff run, Vasilevsky was the man that made a ton of big saves and gave them a chance to retake the lead in games and ultimately to win those games. And so I would even hazard the argument that Philip Grubauer might potentially have been worth as much to his team or more than Gabriel Landeskog, because if the Avalanche lose Landeskog, they still have a lot of firepower at forward. But if they lose Philip Grubauer, who's the goaltender, that opens them up to being sunk in the playoffs by shaky goaltending, which happens to a lot of teams. And I don't know what you think of that line of thought, but... Yeah, okay, I agree with your line of thought. The problem is, is where are you going to find that guy? Like, Carey Price is a great goalie, and he has been for a decade, and he's a generational talent. Vasilevsky's the next guy out. Absolutely. He's the next guy. He's the next... Like, Vasilevsky's going to win multiple Vesnas, and in my opinion, if Vasilevsky retired today, he's going in the Hall of Fame. I think that it is extremely hard to find that guy, that goalie. Um, you know, back in the 2000s, the NHL was flooded with great goalies like Belfour and Kiprasov and Berdur and Luongo. and the, Ryan Miller. Ryan Miller had those breakout seasons as well for Buffalo. The, the league was flooded with great goalies who could play 70 games a year. And that's just not the case anymore because all these young kids, they want to play forward because they want to score. And I get it. And some of them like to play defense as well because they like scoring too. Um, but what's happening is, is that especially in North America, the quality of goaltending is just, it's not there anymore. It's harder to find quality goaltenders and quality guys that can lead that team and, and be that rock in the playoffs where you know, you can rely on them to hold the door, keep the door shut for series after series after series. And like those guys back in the day, like Pekka Rene, you know, Vasilevsky and uh, Carey Price, they got big money because they proven that they could do that. Henrik Lundqvist as exactly, well, exactly. Jonathan Quick as well. Right. They got big money because they could prove that they could be shutting the door series after series after series. I don't think Grubauer has proven that. Fair enough. And I think that if Grubauer proved that he was able to be a star goalie and shut it down for multiple playoff series, that he would have gotten that big money and he probably would have been prioritized more by Colorado. But, I, I mean, yes, goaltender is the most influential position in hockey, and it's so important to get that right, especially because we can lead into talking about Carolina's goaltending situation. But... Like I just I I don't know if Grubauer is that guy. Like I know he's a I know he's a stud. I know he got Vesna votes, but is he that guy that can carry you guys through a playoff series that can get you a shutout in Game Seven of the the conference finals like Vasilevsky did? I don't know if Grubauer's there yet. I think that's very fair, but 
ultimately I would stand by what I said, not specifically for Grubauer and Landeskog, right. but to help our listeners reconsider how they view positions in the game of hockey. Because I truly think that after watching the playoff runs that I have, that star forwards as important as they can be, can get overrated at times, and goalies can get underrated because people think, oh, it's just one guy, and he doesn't score goals. Because you look at who the biggest stars in the NHL are. Crosby, Ovechkin, McDavid, guy, you know, or, and then guys like Taves back in his prime, Boston's big forward line, Colorado's big forward line. Okay, these are immensely talented players who provide highlight reel action and put up gaudy, gaudy numbers. However, I think we've also seen time and again that, like I said before, though, if you're talking about a sort of a man-to-man value of who can, as an individual, revolutionize his team's fortunes, I think the goaltender is the one that has the potential to do that more than anybody else. And so I think that's just worth thinking about moving forward. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Now... The Carolina Hurricanes, meanwhile, as some of you hockey fans may know, they had a quality goaltending asset during this last year as well. That was 25-year-old Alex Nedeljkovic, who put up a 1.90 goals against average, 9.32 save percentage in the regular season over 23 games. Remember, that was a shortened season. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the playoffs in which Carolina made it to the second round and fell ultimately to the buzzsaw that is the Tampa Bay Lightning, nine games played, 2.17 2.17 goals against average, 9.20 save percentage. Not too shabby against an offense like that. No, that's a very good line. And he's, as I said before, only 25 years of age. Plenty of potential, and especially in many cases, goaltenders peak later than a lot of other positions. And very bizarrely, in my opinion, the, the Hurricanes gave up Alex Nedeljkovic. They traded him to the, to the Detroit Red Wings for a third-round pick, and 33-year-old Jonathan Bernier. Now, if you don't know who Jonathan Bernier is, he uh, he's a goaltender who's noted for his inconsistency. Flashes of brilliance followed by vastly substandard play. I believe, was he, was he once a Toronto Maple Leaf? I think you as a Leafs fan... We'll, uh, we'll remember Jonathan Bernier's exploits quite well. Yeah. And on top of all this, Bernier didn't even sign in Carolina. They went, mm, we're not going to sign this guy. And he ended up walking, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he want, went to New Jersey. So Alex Nadelkovich, a young goaltender who played very well in his first ever playoff run and has room to get better, was essentially traded for a third round pick. Because the Carolina Hurricanes were not willing to pay in the ballpark of $3 million per year for an asset like this. I'm perplexed. I am too. Because then when you look at context, the Carolina Hurricanes then went out into unrestricted free agency. And they paid $4.5 million for Frederick Anderson. who oh. So for two years. And Alex Nedeljkovic signed for two years in Detroit at $3 million a year. So they paid more for Frederick Anderson than they did for Alex Nedeljkovic. And Alex Nedeljkovic is younger. And 
he's been healthier. Like with Frederick Anderson last few seasons in Toronto, he's been really hurt. He's been injury prone. And, you know, this season he really struggled putting up an eight, nine, five save percentage because, because he was playing with knee injuries and he was really, and this is why Jack Campbell earned the number one role in Toronto. Exactly. Right. Because well, Frederick Anderson wasn't healthy, but also he wasn't playing well when he was playing because he was playing hurt. So this is the guy that signed for $4.5 million a season in Carolina, why did Carolina evaluate Alex Nedeljkovic at you know 1.5 million dollars, which is what they were doing? I don't know. I'm confused and perplexed at this. But something that I understand how Carolina operates, and this is something that I do actually respect them for, um, and this is something that I think another team should probably do. <clears throat> Oilers. <laughs> is that they? <laughs> you mean to tell me that 38-year-old Duncan Keith at five million dollars plus per year is not a, a a steal of a deal no but what the of course not no yes. of course not but like with what the carolina hurricanes do is they value a player at a certain money certain dollar amount whatever that dollar amount is we can talk about that but if the player wants more than that they have no problem trading them and letting them go and letting them go to another team where they're willing to pay for that that's something that i respect the hurricanes for doing that's something that I wish my Toronto Maple Leafs would probably have done a little bit earlier on before when they were negotiating with the big four contracts. I don't know why the Carolina Hurricanes had the number at $1.5 million for Alex Nedeljkovic because clearly by the numbers that you stated and how they made him the starter in the in the playoffs, Alex Nedeljkovic is worth $3 million a year for a couple of seasons while he cuts his teeth trying to prove that he can be a consistent starter in the NHL. But also... If it doesn't work out, he's perfectly capable. I think he proved that this year in being in a tandem role in Carolina, playing but in that in that system. So I, I don't know why the Hurricanes decided that they wanted to, you know, go after Frederick Anderson at four and a half and why they valued him as more valuable than Alex Nedeljkovic. That's confusing to me. I don't get it. But you know what, we'll see how it works out, but I think that the Detroit Red Wings got a really good goalie in Alex Nedeljkovic. At a steal of a deal. Yeah. Now, maybe there is a chance that Hurricanes management saw something in Nedeljkovic that's not public knowledge, and this something negatively impacted their evaluation of him. Only time will tell if that's true, but just like you, even though I respect the Hurricanes for, for this philosophy, because... Like you said, the Edmonton Oilers are one of many teams that show you what happens when you get really top-heavy. And again, like Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl are two of the most dynamic forwards in the league, but ultimately hockey is a team sport. I think that's counter-argument, and the Carolina Hurricanes want to stick to their guns on strictly managing their salary cap to try to build as well-rounded a team as possible. However, sometimes I think you can stick to your guns a little too much you can shoot first when you maybe should have asked questions. And on the face, the Alex Nedeljkovic situation looks to me like a situation where that happened and Carolina might come to regret this. Something that I think my Calgary Flames could potentially come to regret, I don't know, is the signing of one two-time Stanley Cup champion, Blake Coleman, to a $29.4 million contract. This is spread over six years, and it will clock in at about $4.9 million per year of annual 
value. Now, I just said two-time Stanley Cup champion, and people might be like, well, why is that? Why is that bad? Is that that's good, right? So here's Here's who Blake Coleman is for people who may not know uh, as well. He's a 29-year-old forward, and right away, the age, that's why I don't like the length of the contract. At 35 years old, a lot of athletes across a lot of sports decline pretty significantly at 35 in their mid-30s. But that aside, Blake Coleman, he's a 29-year-old forward, 5'11", 207 pounds, and he plays very physically uh, with a gritty, hard-nosed style. That's a plus. He's mostly a winger, but he can play all three forward positions, or at the very least, both wings, which adds a lot of versatility, and Tampa Bay certainly relied on him in this particular regard. He doesn't have gaudy career numbers on the offensive end, but last year, he scored 14 goals in 55 games, which would have been easily on pace for a 20-goal season, which is enough offensive output to warrant a second-line spot at the at the very least he plays a 200 foot game he kills penalties he forechecks hard he's got that championship experience and leadership and on top of all that he's a very daryl sutter type of player for all the reasons that i just stated and so i think there's a lot to like about blake coleman but at the same time i recognize the fact that his his offensive ceiling i think is very much in in doubt like he played mostly on the third line and sometimes on the fourth line in tampa bay but of course tampa bay is the team that is so deep that they lost yanni gord in the expansion draft and placed steven stamkos on their second line Mm -hmm. so there's definitely a chance that with an expanded role like he will have in calgary he could score more goals his line uh, that he played on in Tampa alongside, I think it was Yanni Gord, and I'm f- somehow, for some reason, I'm blanking on the third forward on that line, but... Uh, Barkley Goodrow. Thank you. Thank you. That line had the second most ice time, I believe, in, in the playoffs, even though they were technically the, the third line, so they were clearly very trusted in, in critical situations, and... Certainly, like I just said, hockey is about more than just offense, and so Blake Coleman would appear to add a lot in that regard. Yet, at the end of the day, $4.9 million per year over six years for a 29-year-old player is a big commitment. And I think that there is a chance that Coleman could, could still bring his physicality, he could still bring his responsible defensive play and his versatility... But if he doesn't stay healthy, or if he doesn't score like a top six forward, this would be considered very much an overpay, and that is what I'm concerned about right now. Yeah, I think so. And I, okay, I, I wonder if this is just a, a contract because there were a lot of contracts that were signed like this in free agency, where general managers were signing a quote, "That's the next guy's problem," kind of contract where Brad Tree Living of the Calgary Flames signed this contract knowing that he needs to win or else he's going to lose his job. And he doesn't care about the AAV. He doesn't care about the length of this contract. He's trying to get this player onto his roster so that way they can win now, so that way he can have another job. And I think that that's a very dangerous place to be. For example, Jim Benning in Vancouver has made a multiple amount of these deals where you know, he signed, you know, Tucker Pullman to four years at two and a half million dollars a season. Like that's 
so much money for a guy who was kind of a, a depth defenseman for the Jets this year. I, I wonder if this is going to be kind of a, a problem in the future, like you mentioned, for the Calgary Flames. I... I look at this contract and I go, okay, well, Blake Coleman, he's never had 50 points. Um, he's not going to be a particularly great offensive output. He's going to be a good middle six winger, like you said. But again, like with Blake Coleman, I, I don't know if he's going to be able to push the Flames further than they can go. I, I, I think that what a lot of people and a lot of fans are doing is they're looking at the Calgary Flames and they're kind of like, when's the rebuild coming? You know, when is when are we going to tear it down? When are we going to rebuild? When are we going to try and, and get some draft picks here? Because, you know, they lost Giordano to Seattle in the expansion draft. You know, they, they have some good pieces, but, you know, they, they're getting older. Uh, Tanev is getting older. Markstrom, he's not young, but he's, he's still yeah. got a few years left. But, um, you know, Johnny Goudreau, for example, they were thinking that maybe they were going to trade him and go in a different direction and change up the the team a little bit but now that you know free agency has started uh he has his uh, no move trade clause kick in where he can now only be traded to uh, a handful of teams i think it's eight teams or so so that makes it extremely difficult for you to trade johnny goudreau to get some assets back so I think what the Calgary Flames are doing is that they're going to try and win. They're going to try and do their best to be competitive, to win games this year, to make it deep in, a deep playoff run with what they have. And they're trying to change the culture. You know, they're trying to change the culture into a Brett, uh, a Daryl Sutter type of uh, a team. And I think that's what Coleman brings to this team is that he's that type of player. So, I think that they're trying to do a culture shift rather than a rebuild here in Calgary. And I think that's where the direction that they're going and that's signified by the contract. So I think that's what's happening and that's where I think that the flames are going, but you know, I think that this is a contract that could be considered to be uh, that's the next guy's problem. Potentially. Now it is worth noting that, Coleman's former teammate, Barclay Goodrow, signed with the New York Rangers for six years at $3.64 million per year. And Barclay Goodrow, with all due respect to him, has been a bottom six forward his entire career, at least to my knowledge. And to me, that is a, that's an enormous overpay for a guy who is not likely to get you more than 30 points a year. Like, he's got good size... He plays responsible defense, but he just doesn't have the skill to play in, in your top six. And and so maybe if someone like Barkley Goodrow got a deal like that, Blake Coleman and his agent were probably like, okay, well, we know we're worth more than that. And the rumors are that Coleman's camp fielded offers ranging from four to seven years in length anyway, which means that a lot of teams, and not just Calgary, viewed him in, it seems like, higher regard than perhaps the two of us do. They, they clearly, a lot of general managers look at Coleman, and I think they're, they're valuing his intangibles, his grit, his leadership, his defense. They're valuing those more than perhaps we are, and I think that's fair. We're not general managers for a reason, but nonetheless... Uh, I think there's definitely an element of risk to this deal. And mm -hmm. I personally am, 
I'm cautiously optimistic that Coleman's intangibles and hopefully a consistent offensive output of 45 plus points a season will hold up and make Calgary a better team and a tougher team because Calgary certainly needs to become a tougher team. Why don't we talk now about the Vancouver Canucks and their dance partner, the Arizona Coyotes, because a a very large deal took place uh, earlier in in July where Vancouver Canucks signed former all-star defenseman Oliver Oliver Ekman Larson and forward Connor Garland. They acquired these two pieces in a trade with Arizona, sending three at this point in their career. Well, Antoine Roussel and Jay Beagle were always bottom six forwards. Lou Erickson used to be a skilled forward, and age has not been kind to him at all. The issue here is that Vancouver gave up a first-round pick this year, a second-round pick next year, and a seventh-round pick the year after that in or- for Oliver ekman Larson and Connor Garland. And Tyson, I know that you think that this is a, a very dangerous deal for two big reasons. First of all, Oliver ekman Larson does not seem to be the great player he once was. And secondly, the Vancouver Canucks have given up a lot of draft capital to take on an aging player on a big contract. Yeah. So what we saw with the Coyotes this year is, is they were prioritizing draft picks. So they took like contracts like Shane Gossespierre, Andrew Ladd, Anton Strawman, guys who are like older players on bad contracts for draft picks. So that way they can load up in the draft because they're going into a full rebuild here. So that's what the, the goal was. But the, the thing is, is that with the Canucks is they took on a really big contract and they gave up draft picks to get that contract. Like in a league where the salary cap is tight, it's a flat cap. The salary cap's probably not going to go up next year. Or if if it does, it's only going to be by a little bit that, you know, it's going to be really hard and really tough for the Vancouver Canucks to manage this high amount of salary cap. And when you look at the Jay Beagle, the Roussel and the Ericsson contracts, Yes, it's $12 million against the salary cap, but that's only for this season, right? So as much as Vancouver fans probably didn't want to hear this, I think it was probably best for the Canucks to suck it up for one more season because you've dealt with this for enough seasons already. Suck it up, deal with it now, so that way next year you have $12 million in salary cap, so that way you have you have room to go into free agency or into trades where you can get some players that can really help add to your team. Right. And obviously the Ekman Larson contract takes up whatever cap space you cleared by sending those three fourth liners out. Exactly. So you, you bring in Oliver Ekman Larson. Now the coyotes are retaining about like just under a million dollars worth of his contract. So it helps a little bit, but you brought in Oliver Ekman Larson. I think he's still got seven years at $7 million left on the cap for the Canucks. (laughs) And they just signed Garland to almost a five times five. So seven plus five is $12 million. So in this trade, what the Canucks did is they sent out three fourth liners for Ekman Larson and Connor Garland. And Connor Garland, who's a depth guy, by the way. Well, he's he was a good. He had a good season this okay. year mm-hmm. in Arizona. He had good numbers, but you know this was his breakout year. So we don't know if he's going to be able to replicate those offensive numbers. He could turn out to be like a a, a middle six scoring winger who averages a, a handful of points every every you know every season, but. They get they lost twelve million in cap, but they gained twelve million in cap space. So essentially, the Vancouver Canucks gained zero dollars in cap space 
But the problem is, is that because of the contracts, they lose 12 million in cap space over the course of five years. And then they lose seven for two more after that because of the Ekman Larson contract. In a world where cap space is deemed as is one of the most important things, Jim Benning doesn't seem to be interested in that. He doesn't really care. Um, he's trying to make moves that'll save his job. Now, I will say this. For the Canucks, this is a win if Connor Garland can be a top six forward, which is what they paid him to be, and Oliver ekman Larson can have a resurgence back to his former former days when yes. he was playing in Arizona. If ekman Larson can find his game outside of Arizona in a new team, in a new situation, then I think that there's a chance the Canucks could have won this trade. But just because of the contracts and the money associated and with this And the draft deal, picks relinquished as well. And the draft picks relinquished with this deal. Like, they gave up the 11th overall pick for this trade to happen, which is a steep, steep price. And then they also gave up a second after that. I don't know, man. Like, to me, this is long-term pain for short-term gain. Like, they're going all in for it to try and win because Jim Benning needs to win. Otherwise, he's going to lose his job. But these contracts are going to be serious problems later on. And I think that's really bad. And I don't know what Vancouver is going to do when Jim Benning is gone. You know, I can imagine that with electrifying young talent like Elias Pettersson, Brock Besser, Quinn Hughes, as well as a rock-solid top-line leader in Bo Horvat there may be some inflated expectations and some impatience in within the Vancouver Canucks organization and fan base because they're like, hey, we have flashes of brilliance and we have these players that you can are very much talented enough for you to build around. Why did we have such a poor season last year? It, it I don't know if this is for sure the case, but maybe that has created the impression overall that Vancouver should go for it. Certainly Jim Benning has gone out and done business like that's the case. And we will see if that gamble pays off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we will. Uh, anything else that you want to talk about in the world of hockey, my man? So one thing that I noticed this offseason is that defensemen were placed as a very high priority this year in the NHL. And probably the best way we can look at this is look at the Edmonton Oilers and, you know, they traded for Duncan Keith. And this is a big contract for an aging player. and 38 years of age, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and he's going to come out at $5.8 million against Ooh. the cap, which is a big number. And Duncan Keith, I don't think that he has the, the skill or the endurance to be able to play top four minutes anymore. I wonder. No, I think the tread on his tires is absolutely worn out because if you're a hockey fan in the early mid 2010s, you know how hard the Chicago Blackhawks rode him again and again into deep playoff runs, and he he used to be an incredibly skilled defenseman, and he could he was a rock, but all those miles have definitely caught up with him. <laughs> yeah, and I I agree with you. You know, Duncan Keith, he was a great player back in 2014 2015 for the Blackhawks. He won the 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 Norris. You know, he's a great guy have to have in the locker room but just at the cap it alone I just don't think that he's going to be worth that money now there are some Oilers fans that are thinking like this is like big brain move by Ken Holland because they're like well maybe Duncan Keith has uh, a handshake a handshake agreement where he's going to retire after this season 
And if he does that, then the Edmonton Oilers actually gain a couple million dollars in salary cap relief because of this thing called the recapture penalty. And for those of you who may not know, if the, if you, the recapture penalty is basically something that was negotiated into the CBA that these players were signing 15, 16, 14, 13-year contracts at ridiculous numbers and then retiring halfway through the contracts because the money had been mostly already paid out. So they were... These these cap capture penalties were designed so that way that would penalize the teams for signing these contracts, so that way they don't do it again. And basically, what is going on is if Duncan Keith retires, a cap recapture penalty will be hit on the Blackhawks, and then money will be reimbursed to the Oilers. But the problem is, is that that's just a handshake agreement that we don't know about. So maybe this is a thing, maybe it's not a thing. I don't really know. But with Duncan Keith, I just I don't know how much he's going to be able to help the Oilers. Like they signed Zach Hyman, he's going to be a top six, but you know that's again that's another really big, really long contract. They signed Cody Cc to four years at three point two five. That's a big contract and a big number for a guy who was chased out of town in Toronto. They traded Ethan Bear, a young defenseman, for some forward depth and Warren Fogel, but nothing has changed in goal for the Oilers. I really wonder what Duncan Keith can bring to this Oilers team that will help them take the next step in the playoffs. I think at this point, Duncan Keith's value comes in veteran championship leadership. However, that's a heck of a price to pay for something like that. And we'll see if this recapture penalty factors into the situation for the Oilers. But on its face, I think it is a vast overpayment for a player who with all due respect to what he has accomplished in his career is a probably a fringe bottom pair defenseman uh, at this stage and that's not where Edmonton's blue line drama ends either because Darnell Nurse signed an eight-year 74 million dollar contract extension with the Oilers recently this averages out to well over $9 million, I believe $9.25 million per year. And I mean, wow, that, that that's a big number. Now, granted, Darnell Nurse played an infamous four-and-a-half-minute shift in overtime in the playoffs against the Winnipeg Jets this year. He played 62 minutes and seven seconds in Edmonton's final game of the year, that 4-3 triple OT loss to the Jets. And if you're doing that, you are clearly one of the few guys on the blue line that your head coach trusts. And to be fair to Nurse, he, he's got great size, he skates well, physical, and he can play a, a, a two-way role and be productive at the offensive end of the ice. And this contract does gel with a lot of other big contracts like you're alluding to that defensemen have signed. Seth Jones, Zach Wierenski, Dougie Hamilton, I believe, were all at least over $8 million a year, some over, over, over nine. nine. Yeah. Over nine. The problem is, is that these some of these guys aren't necessarily worth that kind of money, and you're not sold on Darnell Nurse at this. No, I'm really not. Like, I look at Darnell Nurse, and I see, like, he was definitely sheltered in some defensive positions. Like, he... He's definitely not as defensive as you would probably like for a 1A defenseman to be, which is what they're paying Darnell Nurse to be. Um, you know, he had his career high in goals and points and stuff like that. So, like, he, he, he definitely proved this year he can be an offensive outputter on, on, the, on the blue line for the Oilers. But, 
man, I look at this deal and I go, this is Ken Holland desperately trying to make sure that another one of his players doesn't leave for nothing. And I, I don't know, man. Like I look at Darnell Nurse and I don't think he gets this contract as an unrestricted free agent from any team, let alone from the Oilers. I think that the Oilers could have should have probably ran this a lot more than they did and, and negotiated harder. And, you know, the fact that, you know, this signed at 9.25 means that Darnell Nurse was probably asking for 10 or $11 million a year, which is just unreal numbers for Darnell Nurse. I just don't think that he's the quality of a player to garner, you know, top top money as a blue liner. You know, we I, we've seen in San Jose that if you give too much money to your best defenseman, if they start underachieving like Eric Carlson and Brent Burns have because of whatever reason, it's going to be really hard to build a deep blue line around that. And I think with the Oilers, a blue line has been something that has been really struggling. Their defense core has been weak for years. And allocating $9.25 million a year to one guy isn't going to help your blue line get better and get stronger and get deeper. Nor will that help Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisettle get the depth and help that they desperately require Mm -hmm. in order to make this team a contender either. And folks, just as a comparison, I want to talk about the contract of Dougie Hamilton that he recently signed with the New Jersey Devils. Another really big piece that the Carolina Hurricanes lost this offseason, Dougie Hamilton signed a seven-year deal with a $9 million average annual value, amounts to $63 million, less per year and less in total than Darnell Nurse. Dougie Hamilton scored 42 points in 55 games this year and was a second-team all-star. Does this, in your opinion, reflect unfavorably on the Oilers even further? Yeah, I think so. Like, if Dougie Hamilton is going into unrestricted free agency and getting nine, like, Dougie Hamilton is a much better offensive producer than Darnell Nurse is. And I would think that Darnell Nurse is probably about as good defensively as Dougie Hamilton. Like, that's my evaluation. So I would much rather have a right-shot defenseman, which are more rare, in Dougie Hamilton than I would have in Darnell Nurse. Like, to me, it doesn't make sense why the Oilers would make this make this signing, but then not try and go after Dougie Hamilton more. Like, to me, it doesn't quite make sense for Ken Holland to make this signing, especially now. For me personally, if Darnell Nurse is asking for this money and he thinks he can get it, I would have said, great, we're trading you and we're going to let somebody else pay that bill because I don't think he's worth it. You know the Carolina Hurricanes would have shown him the door in a heartbeat Absolutely. with their philosophy. I, I don't know, Tyson. I think I think you make some really good points, and if I was an Oilers fan, I wouldn't be thrilled about this just because of how much it guts your depth. To have this much money tied up in McDavid, Dreisaitl, and Nurse, when it's been proven time and again that depth and goaltending are the team's true issues, I really don't think it bodes well for them. No, I, I completely agree with you. And I hope the Oilers get it right. I hope that Connor McDavid is able to get a team surrounding him and they're able to make steps in the right direction. But, you know, Ken Holland is on the hot seat after this offseason and the moves that he made. And it seems like it's going to be, you know, quite a quite a, quite a spectacle and quite a show that they're going to have in Edmonton. I wouldn't be surprised if Ken Holland find himself, finds himself out of a job this upcoming season. 
Well, it's going to be a very interesting campaign in both basketball and hockey. That's for darn sure. And I'm sure that there will be a lot more signings and interesting moves going on as we count down to the beginning of that campaign. But we'll have more on that for you guys next time. And uh, I would like to just end this episode on on a bit of a personal note that I am uh, moving back to Indianapolis at the end of the month, actually before the end of the month on, on August 20th. So by the time this episode airs, I might already be back there. And because of real life reasons, you might not see us for, for a little bit of a while because we're going to have to figure out the, the Zoom end of things. Lord knows, Tyson, you don't have great Wi-Fi <laughs> here on the outskirts of Calgary, but we'll figure things out and we'll try to bring you more draft board content in hopefully late August, early September. But for now, we want to wish you guys a great end to your summer. For Tyson Workington, I'm David Song, and we're signing off from the draft board. Thank you for listening to the draft board. Podcast music, intro, and outro is produced by Graham Bass. Your hosts, again, are David Song and Tyson Workington. Come back next week for more insight from the rink, the turf, and the court. See you soon.